Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And stop your grinning and drop your linen because we are here to begin the conversation on a massive franchise. And this is our first time doing this. We're doing a two-parter as we talked about in our last episode. So in this episode, we will be talking about Alien and Aliens. And then in our next episode, in the June episode, we will be talking about Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. But we have so much to get through. There is so much to talk about. We have pages and pages of notes and one bottle of wine, so we're going to see what we can do with this. That's right. This is a franchise that is so big that it actually held us off doing it for a while. There's been a couple of times where listeners have been like, when are you going to tackle Nightmare on Elm Street? And I feel like this is kind of the same thing where it's just so massive that we'd have to break it off into pieces and examine it piece by piece. But we're ready and we're going to take it on and As it turns out, we're actually just a little bit late for the National Alien Holiday. You are all probably aware that earlier in April was Alien Day, and Alien Day's date was actually derived from the planetoid that this all started out on, on Alien. And the holiday, while pretty transparently a marketing scheme, was wrought with a little bit of controversy, wasn't it? Yes. If 20th Century Fox can squeeze any more money out of this franchise, they will do it. That's what I think has been shown time and again. And And so it's Reebok, I believe, the sneaker company that Ripley wears one of their designs or one of the shoes in Aliens. They re-released that shoe for National Alien Day. And people got really excited. Obviously, it's limited edition. It was always going to be hard to get. But then they only released it in male sizing. Now, I have big feet. I'm a tall girl. I have quite big clown feet. But even then, I was like, I want to buy a women's size 10, not like a man size eight. None of that bullshit. If you're going to make a consumer good based on this very iconic female lead in a very iconic genre movie, why wouldn't you put it out in ladies' sizes? And the debate went on that, you know, women can wear guys' sizes and it's so beside the point. So egg on your face, Reebok. I just wanted to get that out in the open before we kept going. So happy Alien Day. If you did decide to observe it and celebrate it, hopefully you did so by doing your homework and watching the film. This is a huge cultural touchstone for so many people, for so many genre fans, and we have a lot to get through, so we are going to jump right in with Ridley Scott's 1979 film, Alien. The crew of the Nostromo, a commercial spacecraft, are awoken from hypersleep by Mother, the ship's computer, who has detected a possible distress signal coming from a nearby planetoid. Once on the planet, part of the crew discover some sort of abandoned spacecraft filled with bizarre-looking eggs and an alien life form who seems to have met an untimely end. One of the eggs opens, spitting acid onto one of the astronauts' helmet and attaches itself to his face. The other members of the investigating crew try to get Kane back on the Nostromo, but Ripley refuses due to quarantine regulations. However, Ash, the ship's science officer, lets them on board. The crew cannot remove the creature from Kane's face, but the creature eventually lets go and dies. 
The Nostromo goes back into space. Kane seems normal, but during a meal, the alien bursts from his chest, killing him, and the crew soon learns that its blood is corrosive. The alien picks off the crew one by one as they attempt to blow it into space. Ripley discovers that Ash has been ordered to return the alien to the crew's employer and that the crew itself is expendable. Ripley confronts Ash and he is revealed to be an android. Eventually, Ripley is the last person standing and initiates a self-destruct sequence escaping in a shuttle. Preparing to enter stasis, Ripley discovers the alien on the shuttle, and in one final battle, she is finally able to eject the alien into space, killing it. She enters hypersleep, hoping that her shuttle would be found somewhere, somehow. So the production history is something that we have to talk quickly about because it informs so much of how we analyze this film. Now, the film was initially written by Dan O'Bannon, who was kind of a B-movie kind of guy. He'd done a really small film, which hadn't really done anything. And then he wrote this spec script, and it was being tossed around through different studios. And then Star Wars happened. Star Wars, the big, huge galaxy space opera, which did incredibly well all across the board. And 20th Century Fox really, really, really wanted to make another big space movie. And Alien, or as it was then titled Star Beast, was on an executive's desk. It was a really beautiful mistake that all of this happened. Dan O'Bannon had met the artist H.R. Giger through working on Alejandro Hodorowski's Dune, and Giger really helped design the alien, helped give it so much of its feel, which we will, of course, talk about. And then the script got passed around through multiple directors via its producers. It eventually landed on the lap of an art school student by the name of Ridley Scott, who had done some really beautiful, very, very artsy films. And this was going to potentially be his big break. So you've got a lot of things happening in this film. And a lot of scholars, a lot of people who have written about this film identify three main points of why it became such a cultural touchstone. First, the emerging prestige of the sci-fi genre, mainly due to the fact of Star Wars being such a big, accessible hit. There's also the emerging role of women in film at this time. Obviously, the sexual revolution was happening, second-wave feminism was happening at this time, so the notion of having a female lead in a film was not totally normal, but it had a nice kind of ring to it. It had a nice marketing pull to it. And then finally, just the role of effects, not only the work of H.R. Giger, but also just the way the ship looked, the way everything was photographed, the way everything kind of seemed mundane, but it was super influential. It was unlike anything a film audience had ever truly seen before. You'll remember from our discussion in our Horrorwood episode that often these amazing blockbuster movies are just a confluence of amazing coincidences. The right people at the right time, the right topic, the right everything. And Alien is actually a great example of that. Now, if you've seen the documentary on Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, you know that he assembled this dream team. He found the perfect artists to make this really surreal mindfuck of a crazy surreal real story and it's a tragic shame that it didn't work out and they allow in the documentary that most of this team went on to utilize similar concept artwork and stuff for Alien and if you're watching the Dune documentary you're like oh man you're bummed that it didn't happen for Dune but at the same time it happened for Alien and it worked so well. 
Now, as regards timing, extraterrestrials have appeared in films since the 1900s. By the 1950s, space exploration and extraterrestrial life being threatening really came to a head because technological advancement was happening so fast, and many of these horror movies were cautionary tales about the ramifications of space travel. So as Alex said, by the time you get to Alien, you've got the sci-fi, you've got the roles of women, the special effects were where they needed to be, and they just got the right team together. And it was the perfect storm to create what would become this cultural phenomena. And just to pick up on Andrea's point of this B-movie boom of sci-fi in the 1950s, that very much had a lot to do with a fear of communism, a fear of the Cold War, a lot of panic and a lot of anxiety surrounding Americana at that time. So you look at the Godzilla films, you look at the thing that came from another world, all of those films, as disparate as they are, tend to kind of circle around those themes, those themes of fear of the unknown, the fear of an Outsider, the fear of anything that we might not be able to see or recognize. The space race in the 1960s, you know, the race to the moon, you know, get there before the Soviets, that helped make the space race very political, which I think really altered the sci-fi genre. And then you had films like the hugely influential 2001 Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. And that's, again, a totally different vision of space and what space means and what humanity means. You know, you've got all these weird influences filtering down through until you get to Star Wars, which again is on its own island. But when you take all these little things together, you have what I think makes up the equation or the DNA of Alien. Now, one of the books I was reading about this was a book called Real Terror. And it just has a kind of really fun, interesting general history of horror films. And it's by an author named David Canal. And he writes of Alien that it is a B-movie done in an A-movie way. And I think that's such a great way to situate our discussion entering into this weird, amazing, beautiful, scary world. And to further corroborate that, I've read some things that seem to suggest that some of the greatness of the movie was accidental, or if you want to be a bit more charitable, you can say they were serendipitous. For example, I have that Ripley was originally written as a man, that the entire script was written as a pack of dudes, kind of in the vein of the thing in this situation, and then they were just kind of like, what if we made her a girl? That might be more marketable. Cool. And in the end, they emerge with one of the most iconic feminist characters ever committed to film. And they also didn't, in the initial marketing of the film, from my understanding, they didn't really push Ripley as the hero. She was very much the Tom Skerritt Dallas figure. He's masculine, he's strong, he's white. He's all of those things that everyone would imagine a movie hero to be. So when he bites it pretty early on in that great iconic scene in the vents... It's quite a shock. If you're watching this for the first time, you don't know what to expect. And so the fact that Ripley emerges quite naturally, in my opinion, as the leader, she always has her head on straight. She's always moving forward. She's trying to do the best she can for the majority of the people. So that was quite shocking. And then shortly after Alien became a huge cultural phenomenon, they really began pushing Ellen Ripley as this is her. This is her story. This is how she does it. 
That's right. I was thinking about that, too, when I was watching it, how if you didn't know better, there weren't a whole lot of clues to suggest that Ripley was going to make it. And furthermore, this isn't a slasher, so it doesn't quite use the same final girl narrative and the same final girl rules as we're going to get into shortly. But if you didn't know better, she seems like a really unlikely hero in the beginning. Yeah, it's her normality, her sensibleness that makes her so different from the rest of them. And I think that's maybe why this film really not only resonates on a cultural level, on a filmmaking level, but on a really personal level. People are very passionate about this film, as I think both of us are, because before, you know, in the other films I was mentioning and in the way sci-fi existed before, it was this weird, magical place full of magical people. Or if you were a normal human venturing into space, it was a really prestigious thing. And what I think Alien captures so well and what Aliens does as well is the sheer banality of being in space. The whole idea of the Nostromo is this isn't some magical thing and they're all so lucky to be in space and they are the best of the best. It's like, no, they are workers. This is their day job. You know, just as we talk about the banality of evil, Alien talks about the banality of space. Right. I really picked up on that, too, about how they are blue-collar workers. They're working stiffs. They're real people who fuck around over breakfast. And it's weird for us to think about because you think about astronauts as being the creme de la creme, right? You'd be so fucking lucky to be an astronaut and to get into space. And, you know, Star Wars had a certain banality of space, but 2001, like you mentioned before, was very, very glossy, whereas the Nostromo is a bit more in the vein of Star Wars in that it looks like very very accessible technology. You know, things are rusty and held together with tape and like none of the technology presented seems that far out of reach even 30 years later. No, and there's a part, I believe it's when Ripley is figuring out that it's a warning signal, not a distress signal, that she's sitting there listening to the message, sitting around some computers, and she's drinking a coffee and she just like plunks the coffee down on one of the big computers. And I was like, that's such a casual thing to do. That's what I do at my desk at work every day. And even as we will probably talk about in a little bit, in one of their personal areas, one of the, um, I think it's one of the engineers, not the Prometheus engineers, one of the actual engineers on the Nostromo has a weird little like porn shrine. He's just like put up all these titty pics. And I was like, you can't do that in space. You are in space. You are the best. You represent us. But no, it's their day job. Of course they can do whatever the fuck they want. Totally. They still smoke, they drink, they swear, they're concerned with getting paid, they talk about getting more money out of the man. They're not heroes. And when they get what they believe is a distress call, they're like, oh, we have to get that? Yes, you'll be in breach of contract. Well, fuck. There is a clause in the contract which specifically states any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. I don't want to hear it. We don't know that it's intelligent. I want to go home and party. Parker, will you just listen to the man? penalty of total forfeiture of shares. And I think this all contributes to why the film really doesn't feel dated at all. It isn't overly utopian or dystopian. It's a future we can easily imagine without it suspending disbelief too far. And that's really important because in any movie that deals with the future, it puts a different lens on everything. We're not watching it expecting any element of reality because everything is already speculative just by nature. 
So one of the things to elevate and shock and freak these characters out of their everyday lives or their everyday hypersleep is this alien, which would eventually in the next film become known as a xenomorph. Now, these aliens are frightening. They are terrifying. They are also beautiful. They are also extremely sexual. And of course, as I've already mentioned, we have H.R. Giger, a Swiss artist, to thank for that. This may be one of his best-known works in terms of design, but he's also become a really respected figure in the art world, as well as kind of a cult icon of his own. Now, these aliens just represent sex. Like, there is no other way to talk about it other than they look sexy, they are glossy, they are gooey, they are wet, they are moist, they are all of those things. And it's quite shocking to see, again, as we've just talked about, this workaday crew with this uh, ship that's a little maybe in disrepair, but probably still fine, and this sleek, elegant thing that just glides through it and wraps itself up in it and hides in the darkest corners of it. It's so different, and that's what shocks these characters into taking action or inaction. I love how sexual the creatures are because I feel like it really puts the industrialness of the Nostromo and of their task. It's really at odds with that. Like you're in the future, all this technological achievement, all this dehumanization and transhumanization that we're going to talk about shortly. And then you've got this alien who combines male and female sexuality. You've got the face hugger who's got a very overt vagina mouth on it. You've got this alien who's got a penis for a head. The original designs had his tail very phallic as well, and that was kind of changed. All of these things kind of remind you that there is still nature in space. And as far as the human race has come, we're still flesh and blood and we still have these impulses. And Giger's work really focuses on a really biomechanical flavor. And it makes sense. If you've ever taken an anatomy class, the body is essentially a machine. There are these tubes that kind of remind you of machine tubes. But it's that juxtaposition that made this alien so memorable and so meaningful, so alien and yet relatable at the same time. Throughout this film, you learn the life cycle or some some of the life cycle of one of these xenomorphs. So it starts as an egg, which is, again, a very feminine thing. It's something that not all, but a lot of cis women can generate every month through our bodies. And then it will attach itself once a host is present and available as what we have come to know as a face hugger. So the thing that Andrea was just mentioning. And it is, I don't know if that's masculine or feminine, I guess with its like sucking inverted thing. It's maybe a little of both. And then it exists as the chest burster, which we see in the incredibly iconic scene in which a chest burster or an alien pops out of John Hurt's chest. And one of the things I enjoy so much about that is obviously it's such a phallic representation and the fact that it's kind of flesh colored in that and then it eventually morphs into this big dark glossy beast but it's like this little like flesh shaped pecker that pops out of John Hurt's chest is very odd and surreal and shocking in so many ways because very rarely are you confronted with that shape and object like with little teeth looking around at you. 
then it very quickly grows and matures and becomes the large beast with a big phallic head. And essentially what we learn through this film is that this alien or xenomorph has to propagate its own species by committing an oral rape. And now in the case of Alien, this happens on a man. And from what I read, this was a decision by the producers, by the creative team behind the film, to make it really shocking. They felt that to do it to a female character would be too easy. It would be too titillating. It wasn't shocking. It wasn't different. So to do it on a character like Kane, who is quite adventurous and quite curious through the little bit of the film that he's in, and some people have actually made reference to the fact that he may be homosexual, which I don't quite buy. But Really? Yeah, there's different instances, or he's coded as feminine in certain ways or Mm. again there are people who read really deeply into this film but essentially it just happens to a man that's what we know it happens to a white man who we see on screen so that's actually quite shocking and one of the things that always strikes me when I watch this film and I go back to it every few years was that when they take Kane back on board the Nostromo he is lying on that table and he is coated in sweat. It's like dripping off of him while this face hugger is attached to him, feeding him oxygen, feeding him the chest burster, all of these things. And it is so aggressive. And it's a perversion of what we in humanity know to be a quote unquote natural birth. So, you know, everything gets inseminated in the bottom half and everything tends to come out of the bottom half. This way it happens through the mouth. It happens through the chest to a man. It's almost the complete opposite or subversion of what we know through pregnancy. I also love how the alien seems to be a mishmash of disparate animals that we know. And I think that was a really great decision on the filmmaker's part. I was watching the behind the scenes and there were some early sketches of aliens that were dismissed just because they were too out there. They were too otherworldly. They didn't make sense in your brain. And maybe they were shocking to look at and frightening to behold, but they didn't maybe make as much sense. With the xenomorphs that we're seeing, like the face hugger resembles an arachnid. It's an egg, as Alex mentioned. We know what eggs are. We know how they work. The chest burster is kind of wormy. The full-grown xenomorph has this gloss to him, that black gloss that makes him look really insectile. And then he's got these pharyngeal jaws, like a moray eel. And I actually did a bit of research on that. Like, why the fuck? any animal have to have two sets of jaws. And there's a moray eel who has two sets of jaws like that, and it results from their inability to really swallow. They use their outer jaw to grab prey and inner jaw to bite pieces off. So I thought that was really interesting. But like profuse salivation, the sweat, the cocoon, this is like a mishmash of all different animal kingdom tidbits that we know just to combine to make this perfect monster. One of the things that I think is so unique about the xenomorph, and again, this creature, this design, the whole design and feel of this film has been ripped off multiple times. And you can, I'm sure, think of many examples. But one of the things I don't see a lot of, even in the sequels to this film that Alien really gets, is the tactile nature of this creature. Again, as I mentioned, the sweat on Kane, as Andrew was talking about, that gloss, that sheen to it, and that goo that it leaves everywhere. And we've talked about this before on this podcast 
podcast is that we as humans in this society and in this culture are very much conditioned to not worry about our bodily functions or hide them or how we menstruate blue liquid every month. All of those things where we are like, ooh, that's, you know, gross and it's abject and it's terrifying and how awful is that desecration of your body. And in Alien, this thing just starts to, like, corrode the entire ship and its crew with these tactile, gross-seeming things, which are incredibly natural to it. It doesn't have that self-censored to be like, I should wipe. It's like, no, I lay it all on your ship. That's right. Another thing we need to bring up is that a creature so hostile, a creature that necessarily needs to not only use a host to procreate, but needs to destroy it and needs to eat it and all that. He's got a really cool defense mechanism that we haven't mentioned just yet, which is his acid blood. And in the first film, Ripley never really kills the fucking thing or even really hurts it. The alien is presented to us as essentially indestructible. When they're trying to take the face hugger off of Kane, the slightest incision sprays them with an acid so strong that it seeps through several decks. Like, this is serious fucking acid. You have to evade it in order to survive it, which actually reminded me of a horror gaming debate that emerged a couple of years ago. Like, horror survival gaming used to always be about evade, hide, very scarce resources, and then they all kind of turned to more action-based, button-mashing ammo fests. And the release of Alien Isolation back in 2014 promised to bring that element of horror survival gaming back, true to the first film's attitude. And I think that's something that makes the film very special. It's, it's something that sets it apart from the second film, for sure, that this is an alien to be feared and avoided, and it's not something that you want to encounter head-on. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. So among the main themes that I was able to pick out from watching these first two films again, and I've obviously seen these two films numerous times, and in my brain I remembered the differing plots between them, I remembered the different circumstances, but I didn't quite remember how different they are tonally. But among the main themes, in addition to the space and the sci-fi, which is of course very cool, a couple of other themes injected into this film that made it especially relevant to its time is the idea of post-humanism, the idea of artificial intelligence being the future. We've got these characters who are so vulnerable to mother for survival. When they are in their cryosleep, they are essentially babies in mother's womb, which is likely why mother is called mother. And perhaps this is why all the sexual imagery works so well, as sex is down to the basic human function. It predates technology and will always be there. Now, Ridley Scott insists that there's no messagery in this film and that it works on a very visceral level, but obviously there's tons of scholarship about the film, about reproduction, about feminism, about Marxism, and all that stuff. But AI, technological innovation that was designed to make our lives easier, could possibly turn on us. And this isn't iRobot. It's about an alien, but it's also about this AI. And we have elements of the Frankenstein complex, which we looked at a bit in episode 35, that if we create life, if we play God, we have to live with what happens. But... The flip side to the Frankenstein complex is the idea of transhumanism, which is the belief that it's our responsibility to build on and improve the human condition through technology. Basically, if you've got it, smoke it. If your brain can conceive of these things, then holy shit, we are entitled to make them happen, and we should. 
Now we have Ash, who is secretly a robot who is hiding the company's motives behind his Hippocratic oath, which is to preserve life. And he is, as I mentioned in the synopsis, the ship's science officer. So it does make sense that he would want to preserve this. But the fact that he is an android means that his directions can be shifted. If someone was to tell me, oh, you have to kill Andrea, I'd be like, I don't want to kill Andrea. She's my friend. And then if they asked a few more times, then I'd probably think about it. But for Ash, I know, I'd rather just be upfront with you. But for Ash, it gets programmed to him and he executes. There isn't that weird morality, that humanity that seems to complicate so much of our lives. So one of the most important things, and I think we might have actually touched on this in a previous episode, but another big science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, wrote about the three rules of robotics. And, you know, this is quite simple, but essentially robots shouldn't kill a human. Robots should also try to protect themselves, but if it means their destruction can save a human, they should destroy themselves to save the human. Essentially, it all comes back to respect your creator. The first law is as follows. A robot may not harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey orders given it by qualified personnel unless those orders violate rule number one. In other words, a robot can't be ordered to kill a human being. Uh, Rule number three, a robot must protect its own existence. After all, it's an expensive piece of equipment. uh, Unless that violates rules one or two. A robot must cheerfully go into self-destruction if it is in order to follow an order or to save a human life. And so Asimov wrote about this becoming problematic, this becoming challenging. There's so many stories that can evolve out of that idea that you must always protect your creator. And one of the things I always find most interesting about Ash, and to me he is the most fascinating character in this film, is that he doesn't have that. He was never programmed with that. So we are dealing with a world where those rules to protect the people that created you don't matter. We exist in a world of this film where there is a much higher power or a much stronger dollar sign at the end of the road for a lot of these characters. And that's essentially what this is, as we come to learn in later films. And not only that, he doesn't seem to aspire to any form of morality because another, like, bastardization of this android that we see in popular culture, like, think of the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. If I only had a heart, this is something that I'm lacking. I am incomplete. I want to be more human. Data on Star Trek, he just wants emotion more than anything. Ash does not give a fuck about anything like that. He genuinely admires the alien life form for its survival instincts. In fact, he says outright, I admire its purity. He doesn't share that admiration for human beings that surround him. He's interested in how this form is a survivor and survival is pure and ethics are weakness. And I can see why he would think that because there are several instances in the film where crew members deciding to help one another gets them killed. I mean, there's bringing Kane on board, which obviously he had a hand in to get at the organism, but he witnessed that fight and he observed it. And Parker doesn't shoot the alien when Lambert is in his line of fire. He sees this as a human weakness, but he's counting on it to be able to carry out his mission. And a lot of the scholarship around Alien is the idea that Ash, being basically asexual, he doesn't have the organisms, probably doesn't have the desire, doesn't have those 
fits and starts that we have as humans, he relates or respects this kind of hypersexual organ that the alien is, that it corrupts, it corrodes, it rapes, it goes about its life as it needs to. So it's very interesting that basically Ash is identifying with something on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Everything is black or white for him. He cannot see the gray shades that all of the other characters represent within the film. I totally agree with that. And I think he was especially impacted with seeing how sexual this organism was in its violence. Because when Ash goes on his violent attack on Ripley, he's like, I need to exterminate this shit. And you would think that an android would have the easiest time strangling you, smashing you in the head, throwing you in the airlock. Like there's a number of things that a super strong android can do. But what does he do? He rolls up a porn magazine and jams it down her throat. His attack is really rapey. It's so hypersexualized. I mean, that's some of the funny things they think about. And I think we've all heard Ridley Scott say, there's nothing else but a fun time at the talkies. But no, there's so many layers to this film. And the fact that he is jamming a pornography magazine down her throat and the fact that this is the point when he begins to sweat and his sweat is like white liquid. I mean, it's so sexual, but in this weird fit of impotence, it's so aggressive to her. It's aggressive to her as a woman. It is aggressive as a woman to watch, probably as a man to watch as well. But it's using all of these human things against her because she is questioning him because she is caught on. So Ash is constructed as pretty much the ultimate company man, dehumanized in nature. He just wants what the company wants. And what the company wants is another really important theme in these films. And I would argue what elevates this film in terms of academic inquiry beyond Star Wars, beyond 2001. There are corporate interests at stake. In the 80s, this is the rise of corporate power. This is something that we're a little bit worried about because they're made up of people, but they're not really liable the way people are. They're not subject to the same scrutiny as people would be. And so here is this corporation that's obviously way at odds with human beings' best interests. Now, the company's intentions are manifested in the computer that they call Mother that we've already talked about. And Mother can only give orders under threat of termination. The crew is able to disobey or override the ship's computer, but they largely don't want to because they see it as a mother figure, as something that's going to take care of us. They trust it. And as Andrea mentioned, not only is this time of when this film was made and released in 1979 and as its influence and cultural impact grew through the 80s, this was a real time of suspicion and paranoia around governing bodies. And in the Alien franchise, there's no real mention of a space government, but we equate the Weyland-Yutani organization, which is the company that all these people are working for, with this overarching power struggle or this powerful figure. This is the thing that will take care of them. This is what will pay them. This is what will clothe them. This is what will put them to hypersleep. This is what will take care of them in hypersleep. So it makes sense that there is a learned fear and paranoia, especially coming out of the Vietnam War, which we will get into probably a lot more of the second film that we're going to talk about. And as well, the Watergate scandal, this is such a huge time of social and civil unrest that it is so hard to ignore. And this film, I think, fits 
really nicely within the movement of New Hollywood, which was a movement in the 70s with filmmakers, a bit like George Lucas with like Easy Rider, and as well, you know, Apocalypse Now, as well as Taxi Driver. There is a lot of paranoia and suspicion. And in the horror movement, you have films like The Last House on the Left, as well as Alien, and as well as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In New Hollywood and in New Horror, as it has been called, horror or terrifying things are a given, not an exception. These are things that you have to deal with in your everyday life. Again, it's talking about the banality of evil. It's the banality of horror that we live with these things around us and we are hoping just to cope. Yeah. And if you just look at the nature of the lie that they're told, like, oh, it's a beacon. It's a distress beacon. We have to help people out. Oh, we don't want to. We just want to go home. Well, the company demands it. So it actually kind of lulls you into thinking that the company does subscribe to some kind of humanitarian code. If you're out in space and someone needs help, you have to help them. And then it's revealed, oh, actually, we just want this organism that's going to kill you all. So fuck you. Jokes were super into weaponizing random things. Lol. So as we mentioned before, the character of Ripley was originally written to be a man, which in my opinion probably actually explains why Ripley is such a feminist character, because that's exactly what so many male filmmakers kind of miss, is they try to write for women, and so they impose all these stereotypes and these expectations that don't work. She was written to be a human being and not a woman. Is it perhaps more frightening that a woman was the only one to survive? Maybe. Her defining characteristic in this film, I feel, is that she's very by the book. She trusts the rules to keep them safe. She trusts in the chain of command to work. And it's this sacred trust being broken that is what visibly breaks her. All the other characters in the film, basically with the exception of Ash, because he's an android, and I'm not trying to be androidist, but they all subscribe to their own male-female traits. They run that gender binary pretty hard. The men are pretty hyper-masculine for the most part, and the only other female in the crew, Lambert, she kind of represents the hysterical female. You know, she is the abject terror of just screaming and being horrified and being panicked. But all the other guys pretty much eventually try to step up to the plate at some point or another. They go off on their own. They go do something on their own. But Ripley is the one who doesn't really subscribe to either of those. As Andrea said, she's simply a human being. To me, Ripley is the person who, if I am ever in a situation of panic or fear, she is who I'm like, what would Ripley do? Just do that. What would Ripley do? It's true. She's that kind of inspirational leader who leads by example. It was never a power thing with her. You know, at at some point she does kind of flex the chain of command and be like, hey, this was my call and you went against it. And I'm fucking calling you out on that. Ash, when Dallas and Kane are off the ship, I'm senior officer. But by and large, when the shit hits the fan, she takes on a leadership position simply because Lambert is hysterical. Parker is a bit too balls out. She's the temperate medium. Yeah, and the one time when she actually yells to Parker to listen to her. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. When she is simply trying to reinforce the plan that they have agreed on, that they're going to blast it into space and just fuck it. It is the easiest thing. It is the safest thing to do for them all to survive. She is literally just fighting for everyone's survival at every time as much as she can. 
she is such a fantastic character in this film. She's such an inspirational character in this film. I feel like this film legitimizes a lot of the praise that she gets. I think it's really problematized in the next film that we're going to talk about. But I feel like we can't move along from this film without discussing her nefarious panties. On the one hand, I kind of hate that we have to bring it up. But the fact of the matter is, with all the scholarship and all the criticism of all the amazing, heady, in-depth themes going on in this film, that one scene of her and her shuttle at the end of the film where she strips down to her skivvies is a very, very talked about part of this movie. It's actually, to me, quite upsetting how much it is talked about. I can see it being mentioned in a few instances to maybe talk about feminist themes and and the male gaze, Laura Mulvey's theory of when a camera looks, it's the male gaze sexualizing a woman. I get that. I think it does have to exist to a certain degree, but almost everything I read had to do with it. And obviously we've talked about this film as the alien representing this rampant hypersexuality. And the fact that Ripley gets down to her skivvies at the end is also her succumbing to sexuality or her being looked upon by the alien or all of these things. And it just, I don't get it. And maybe it's because I perennially have a female gaze where I just look and I'm like, yeah, she's going to go to sleep. She's going to go to sleep for weeks, months, ultimately decades. And I wouldn't want to wear a jumpsuit to bed. I don't get it. And to me, it was so much more about her vulnerability. It wasn't sexual to me. It's that sheer vulnerability. It is, as we've talked about already, the notion of technology, of cleanliness, of orderliness being completely destroyed by this xenomorph creature. And then we actually see a little bit of Ripley's flesh. You know, maybe as a woman, just seeing, you know, arms and legs of a woman is not shocking to me. But it actually, yeah, it it pisses me off that that has become such a big part of scholarship because I respect scholarship. I, I truly do. And it just doesn't resonate for me as a topic. It's frustrating, and insofar as we're bringing it up, so we're contributing to it, but at the same time, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't kind of offer our observations on this big fuss. What's frustrating to me is I feel like her panties don't matter much to me. I also took it as a heightened, vulnerable state in a moment where she feels alone and safe, but what's crazy is so much dialogue about how they fit and how they looked and how her butt crack is kind of showing, and like... It's so irritating that it would have been a big deal no matter what, right? Bikini cut, thong, French cut, boy cut, all have these ridiculous implications that people would have imposed upon her fucking gitch. What matters most to me, the only meaning I could possibly glean out of it, apart from the vulnerability, is that they look kind of utilitarian and misfitting. They kind of look like your comfy baggy undies that you'd wear in fucking space. Yeah, she got that with her human resources training at Weyland-Yutani. Here are your space panties. You get one pair. Take care of them. I'm actually surprised they're so clean after what she went through. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, we've laid the foundation for the films. The Alien franchise, every film really builds upon itself, revealing new alien characteristics of each film, revealing new possibilities for plot lines. And so we're going to move on into Aliens now, but we're going to refer back to the first film constantly throughout this two-part series of the themes that reoccur throughout. And for a lot of people and a lot of horror fans, they kind of delineate between the two as Alien is like a haunted house movie in space. 
And Aliens is like the blown open war film that is kind of the next step, the next logical step, if you're going to face a threat as scary as the xenomorph. And I think you can even look at a bit of the marketing material. So Alien, when it was marketed just with its poster, it had the incredibly famous tagline, in space, no one can hear you scream. When Aliens was being promoted, they used the tagline, this time it's war. It's so perfectly apt. James Cameron took the reins here, and he's got such an eye for exaggeration. More, more, and more. This is evident in Aliens as well as Terminator 2. He did both Terminator films, and again, the first film was a lot more subtle. It was a lot more nuanced. It was more of a horror film. And in the sequels, he just took it into total action film territory. Both films share many characteristics, including the cast members and the main themes of future AI anxiety. And Terminator 2 brought more levity to the Terminator franchise, whereas, in my opinion, it actually had the opposite effect on Alien, adding special effects and more bombastic action into strictly action movie territory. I've heard a lot of people say that Aliens is not even a horror movie anymore. Yeah, I think it plays with those genre themes really well. Alien is both a sci-fi film and a horror film, just as I think Aliens actually brings in the action genre as well, as Andrew was mentioning. I see it as an action film, I see it as a science fiction film, and I see it as a horror film. It's terrifying through so many lenses and you know it just blows the doors off so to speak it adds the sense of okay the audience has seen what is going to happen when a xenomorph gets out okay if we're going to re-enter this world i want to see firepower i want to see people who could potentially be equipped to handle this really try to handle it so these films share a lot of thematic dna but they're such different films and i think that's why aliens is so successful on so many levels because it doesn't try to replicate what made alien great It tries to make itself great on its own terms. So without further ado, 1986's Aliens. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Aliens, 
This time, it's war. The film picks up right where the first film left off, where instead of heading home, Ripley floats around in stasis for 57 years before she's rescued quite by accident. Now, the corporation is mad at her for destroying their fancy starship, and they refuse to believe her story about the alien because there isn't any evidence. She's fired, even though by now she's probably long overdue to retire. She's horrified to learn that her daughter, who was 11 at the time of the first movie, passed away at the ripe old age of 60-something. And the planet where they found the eggs, LV-426, is now host to a terraforming colony called Hadley's Hope. Sure enough, the corporation loses contact with the colony, and then they're knocking on Ripley's door to return to the planet and help the military destroy the threat. The mission also includes another AI android guy, Bishop, a slew of military grunts, and a corporate representative named Burke. Now, they scoff at Ripley's warnings at first, but it isn't long before everything she warned about comes true. The colony is infested with aliens and eggs, and the people are largely dead or cocooned in the walls, with the exception of Newt, a little girl who they find hiding in the vents. Things go from bad to worse. The ride home gets totaled, they fuck up the colony's thermonuclear reactor, and they discover that the corporate suit, Burke, is under secret orders to return the alien specimens to Earth for use as biological weaponry at any cost. Carnage and violence ensues, yada, yada, yada. Ripley is once again able to save the day by fighting off the queen alien with her cargo loader exosuit and repel the bitch into space through an airlock. She heads home in hypersleep along with Newt, Hicks, and a severely damaged bishop. So as we mentioned before, Aliens tries to one-up the original in just about every way, and in most cases, it succeeds. The space shots of the exterior of the ship are vastly improved. The creatures themselves look way better. Like I never would have complained about the alien in the first film, but after seeing the second, you're like, eh, that was a guy in the suit. Whereas in Aliens, their tail movement is awesome. There's a lot more new technology to marvel at. More aliens, more guns, more explosions. It's definitely a crowd pleaser. And I think where Alien dabbled slightly in some of the themes of mistrust, the Vietnam War, government, etc., etc., Aliens is very much indebted to the Vietnam War movement in film of the 80s. So you have films like Rambo First Blood, Platoon, and as well as another Stanley Kubrick film, Full Metal Jacket, among many others. This film, to me, reads as a really interesting exploration of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which Ripley suffers from from the outset. Her initial experiences on the space station where she's being kept, she's given kind of a low-level job. They're not giving her her actual status back. They're just letting her exist there. She has horrible dreams. She has dreams of a chestburster coming out of her. She is deeply alone, and she doesn't know how to deal with it. The only time she actually agrees to enter into conflict throughout the film is when there are other human lives at stake and if she can see herself helping in any real way. Of course, she is disbelieved. No one really trusts her. Everyone's wondering, you know, why is Snow White here? All of these things that denigrate her. So it's up to her again to prove herself. This is something that Ripley does in each one of these films. She starts off incredibly low status and builds herself throughout her actions in the film to the highest, most empowered status within the film. 
it's almost interesting that she never once questions herself. Like, I was trying to think of this objectively. She woke up from cryosleep. They responded to this distress signal. Everything gets so fucked up, like, unbelievable. And then she enters cryosleep again and emerges with this cat. And I almost feel like if that was me, I'd be like, holy f- what did happen? I would question my own memory, but she is steadfast because her nightmares do not lie. Nope. They are such a real presence to her. They are the one thing she knows to be true. And if she can help, if she can be on the ground, she is willing to participate. And I think, again, that adds to her feminist stature. That adds to her iconic stature just as a film character. She is so beloved because, again, like I said, what would Ellen Ripley do? It's what we hope the best of ourselves would do. Now, I mentioned before that this film is very tonally different from the first film, and there's a lot of factors informing that. First and foremost is the alien. I mentioned that they look way better, but the creatures in the first film were presented to us as near indestructible, whereas the second film shows Marines just fucking packing them full of lead and exploding, and it just packs them on. Like, what's scarier than one alien? A whole bunch of them. What's scarier than a whole bunch of them? A queen! Now, the queen really elaborates on the alien typology having insectile traits. We're kind of introduced to the idea that there are drones, there are warriors, and then there's a queen. Only the queen can lay the big eggs, and then the facehuggers lay the little egg to host what will become a xenomorph. The life stages are a bit more fleshed out by the emergence of the queen in this film. And I think because you see the addition of the queen alien in this film, the aliens become more human. You see, once the queen emerges towards the end of the film, that's really Ripley's final confrontation, you see the alien queen get fucking mad because Ripley destroyed all of her eggs. There is a sense of maybe it's not humanity, but that sense of survival, which becomes more relatable. Now, insofar as the alien emerges as more of a character in this second film, the rest of the characters are actually less human. The characters introduced as these military grunts are very one-dimensional. They can be summed up by a line. And as such, it's a lot less tragic when they get vivisected. They're essentially fodder. I actually think that, and I don't disagree with you, and I think you have to keep in mind that so many of these Marines get wasted within the first confrontation with the alien, and it's quite upsetting. It's very visceral, that scene, and it's incredible. And I don't disagree that some of those characters are disposable, like Gorman, like Burke, like Hendricks. Then you've got a great foil to everything with Vasquez. But I think what separates them from so many other film characters of that ilk is that they are played with incredible charisma by really great actors who really play them like characters. And so you've got, you know, so many iconic moments with each one of them. These characters didn't speak to me at all. Like, they're supposed to be military, but they're just so undisciplined. They interrupt their superior officers. They disobey orders regularly, which, again, was like a a layer of disbelief that I had a hard time surpassing. And also their banter is so much more sexist than the crew of the Nostromo 57 years ago. It actually feels like social progress has reverted while Ripley was asleep. And that was a bit of a bummer for me. Well, I think they provide an interesting foil as we were just talking about. Ripley is so, she just believes and she goes and she does. And I feel like these other characters form this really interesting Greek chorus of portraying audiences' anxieties, offering a potentially funny line if you think they're funny. Hey, Vasquez, 
Have you ever been mistaken for a man? No. Have you? <laughs> oh, that's good. And they offer these weird kind of facets of humanity that all come into play. And to watch them play out, like, for me, Gorman is actually quite an interesting character. He's quite senior to all the other military grunts, as we talked about. And he is the most inexperienced. He's done drops, but not really. How many drops is this for you, Lieutenant? 38. Simulated. How many combat drops? Uh, two. Including this one. But he is the one that just tries to stick with it, and in the end, he sacrifices himself with Vasquez, and they have a moment where they look at each other, and they decide to detonate that grenade and wipe out a bunch of the xenomorphs that are coming for them. And that, really, like, that moment sticks with me. Every time I watch it, I get a little misty-eyed, because these are characters who maybe shouldn't have those emotional moments in a lot of other films. Like, if we talk about slashers, obviously Aliens is not a slasher. But if you look at them, they're all just kind of like, oh no, I'm getting killed. But with these characters, they're making conscious decisions at a lot of different times. Another great character is Burke, as played by Paul Reiser. And I seriously question whether Helen Hunt knew what he was up to in this film. He is all about himself, and then he's all about getting that money, getting ahead in this corporation, and sacrificing everyone else in his wake. He gives no fucks about that. And I think his transformation is so interesting because he is, at first, Ripley's ally. He's the one who's like, I believe you, I do all this stuff for you, I'm trying to help. But he reveals himself to be the ash of this journey. He is monstrous. He is horrible. He puts all of their lives at risk constantly. I did feel something of a missed opportunity at one point when Burke is trying to defend his position against destroying the colony. And to his credit, he does try. He is pure, concentrated evil, but he does try to get people to see things his way. And when he realizes that no one's going to get on board with the fact that it's a monetary decision and the colony is a multi-billion dollar investment that they can't just torch and abandon, he actually touches upon the ethical quagmire of simply annihilating another species this is clearly clearly an important species we're dealing with and i don't think that you or i or anybody has the right to arbitrarily exterminate them come on yeah watch us it's implied that it's not really their fault that they're parasitic by nature and it's a shame that this idea didn't get more airtime because i feel like insofar as burke is really the villain of this film, I feel like that was a really interesting existential question that didn't quite get its due. Well, Ripley kind of poses the question back to him. You know, Burke, I don't know which species is worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. To which, Burke looks like he got slapped in the face. So I totally agree. I think that is a really interesting question that the next films in this series attempt to explore a little bit and complicate. But, you know, we are all fighting for survival. And I think Aliens posits these others as having their own mandate. They're just trying to survive. They're trying to procreate. 
So this parallel between these two species trying to survive again enhances this Vietnam parallel that I mentioned a little bit earlier. And Cameron himself contributed to the Rambo series. He has said in several interviews that he was fascinated by these spoils of war, the whole fog of war, everything that came down with Vietnam, which was a shitty fucking war for America. It traumatized at least one generation, probably multiple generations, and really set America back. I mean, this is their first big war since World War II. And that was, you know, we're just going to stop Hitler and we're going to stop fascism. And that was clean cut. That was simple. That was good versus evil. Vietnam, it falls into that Cold War kind of era. It's so sad and messy and fucked up. But it does play into the idea of America saw itself as good and true and these others, the Vietnamese, as other. And I won't bring up the slang that was used to refer to the Vietnamese, but it was such a nasty war. And it was also a nasty war on home soil for conservative Americans. They felt that they weren't really able to use proper firepower. They just weren't able to lay waste to the Vietnamese in the way they would want to. And then you have liberal America just believing this war should have never started. They should have never gotten involved. So no one was going to win. And that's when you have all these complicated feelings when, you know, veterans would come home from Vietnam and there would be no support for them. And the notion of a lack of use of firepower that comes in really early with Alien and the notion of, oh, shit, their blood is corrosive, even though not as much, but we can't use that. We're going to damage the generator. We're going to fuck everything up if we use all of these technological weapons that we have. In a lot of the same way that Americans felt during the Vietnam War, this war was fought on terrain that they were not used to, that they could not use their kind of firepower that they had developed. So they had to do really long, drawn-out battles. Another interesting allusion between aliens and the Vietnam War is that the Vietnamese used a lot of tunnels and a lot of underground tunneling to get to different areas of their home soil, just as the aliens or xenomorphs use the tunnels to track and attack the Marines once they are on the soil. Another thing that's really important to consider when we talk about the Vietnam War is that this was one of the first wars to be aired on television, that there was footage, that there was photography, that there were journalists over there, and they were bringing these stories home, which ignited so much of the social debate in America. And I think you can see this really clearly in the APC scene when Ripley, Gorman, and Burke are there trying to give the Marines direction, and they first go into the alien lair where all the colonists are being kept. All right, the area is secured. Let's go in and see what the computer can tell us. It's not secure. The area is secured, Ripley. And it's fucking horrifying. It is so scary. And it's pre-found footage almost because all the Marines have cameras strapped to their heads and they're just freaking out and shooting and trying to help each other and trying to figure out what is going on. And the sense of panic is so palpable. It is so fucking scary, that scene. It's true. And these Marines, they don't know at all what they're getting into until Ripley kind of briefs them, but she's kind of also interrupted. And there's a point where somebody says something like, oh, you know the corporation, don't ask, don't tell. They don't know what they're doing there, but they're prepared to just kick some ass. Like, that's what they know. 
So the antithesis to all this hyper machismo aggression is in the new android on this mission by way of Bishop, who's played by Lance Henriksen, and he's much more charming than Ash ever was. He fucks with the Marines a bit in the great scene with a knife in the hand. And he seems deeply apologetic to Ripley when he learns that she's had some kind of trauma with a past android. He is kind and sensitive and smart and brave. He seems to really conform to the Asimovian rules that Isaac Asimov set out decades before. He is attempting to save humans. He is also, interestingly, constantly trying to put Ripley at ease. He's constantly trying to put the people around him at ease of his status. He knows what he is. He is comfortable explaining what he is. And he is even more comfortable trying to do things to help. He is the first one to say, I will go out to that thing and I will try to fix it or get that thing together and we will blast off together. He basically becomes the kind of wacky uncle to the little family that they form by the end of the film. It's also helped by the fact that Lance Henriksen gives a really charming, almost childlike performance in this film. And I think that's what's helped Bishop becomes so beloved as a character. Now, I do have to say, I think we have more to talk about with Bishop in the next film. So, you know, unless, Andrea, you have anything to add at this moment, particularly about Bishop, I must want to put a pin in it and we might come back to it next episode. No, I agree with that. There's a lot more to say about Bishop. I think what was really interesting to me about this film as regards Ripley versus Bishop is that her technophobia with regard to Bishop is so obviously justified. Bishop is transparently an android right from the beginning, whereas Ash was not. And her expectations are confounded. And I think it's implied that she actually sees her own plight in him as she's encountering this I call it sexism. I mean, this is the distant future. We can try to say that there's other factors at work, but I think largely they're just like, you don't know what you're talking about because you're a woman. You don't remember what really happened because you're a woman. You're upset and you're hysterical because you're a woman. What were you wearing? But You're wearing those white cotton panties we gave you because you were just asking Exactly. For it. But she had written him off because he's a machine and she kind of turns around full circle and makes that same realization that maybe Hicks makes about her. All these characters have a revelation that we've got to fucking listen to Ripley. So I thought that was really interesting. But you're right. We're going to come back to Bishop. Don't you worry, listeners. I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. So to go even a step further than Bishop in terms of a foil to the Marines and the war scenario and all these allusions to Vietnam, we just have to look at Newt, the daughter of colonists who survived on her own with a sad little doll who just made do with what she could. And she's tracked very early on in the film and the Marines go and find her and they pull out this distressed, quiet, traumatized little girl And Ripley immediately bonds with her. It's, for lack of a better term, basic. She sees a little girl in trouble. The little girl is somewhat receptive to Ripley. And she's got a little doll and she's terribly cute. And they become a mother and daughter. And Ripley feels this incredibly strong bond to protect her. Now, what's interesting is that Ripley, as we've already talked about, feels a responsibility to protect everyone. 
but there is something different with Newt. It is inferring a kind of gender role that we haven't really seen Ripley play into, but in playing the role of a mother, not mother from the first film, but a mother, a nurturing, kind, warm figure, she's all about that. I actually found all of that really problematic. In rewatching Aliens, I found that Ripley got really watered down once motherhood entered the picture because it enters the equation in a very heavy-handed manner. After we had determined that we were going to do the Alien series, I actually went home and was surprised to discover that I've got like a special edition Blu-ray quadrilogy that my boyfriend had bought on sale. So it had all these special features. And in both cases, I would turn on the movie and it would ask me, do you want the original or the new remastered special edition extended director's cut? And I'd be like, ah, oh, for fuck's sakes. I don't know. Director's cut, I guess. Like whatever is extended, show me all of it. And in both cases, it had the director. In the first case, it was Ridley Scott. In the second, it was James Cameron, who took a little bit of camera time to say, hey, this is the version that you were meant to be shown. And I'm not squeezing more money out of you. I swear, this is just the full story. This is what it all is. So I think part of me is aware that the cut that I saw of Aliens was significantly longer than the original theatrical cut. And it really belabored the motherhood thing, which kind of exacerbated my irritation with it. Basically, Ripley discovers that her daughter died while she was in stasis, and she really ports that instinct over to Newt, and it sticks in my craw when people praise Ripley as she is in Aliens as this amazing final girl. I mean, in the first film, she totally was, but Aliens works really hard to imply that her strength isn't in her resourcefulness or her leadership or her will to get out alive. It's in this reproductive instinct. It's in this failed motherhood that she displaces and her mental anguish as a failed mom, the idea that her life has no meaning, but dear God, won't someone think of the children? And all of this reduces her to her gender while also juxtaposing that with this exaggerated masculinity that's imposed upon her. We don't see her smoking and swearing in the first film. She cuts her hair even shorter. There's a lot of Sarah Connor that I'm seeing here, you know, like James Cameron seems to really like the idea of traumatized women doing pull-ups and becoming more like men. And my problem is in the implication that that's an evolution of a hero. Yeah, I don't disagree with Andrea. As a critic and a film writer and a film podcaster, talking about Ripley as a mother or being a mother figure I find problematic. And I find it problematic within this film because it reduces Ripley's womanhood and her agency to having that attachment to a child, no matter how cute that child is. Because I find that conceit quite manipulative. I find it hammy. I find it something that shouldn't work. But as an audience member, it totally works for me. I get emotionally sucked into it. You know, my heart is like going for those guys. And and I like that Hicks likes her. But in my head, I'm like, no, this should be better. This should do better. This should do more. And I think there is a nice sentiment of a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So, you know, we can do all these crazy cool things with aliens. And if we code it in this nice narrative structure that we are all familiar with, then everyone will kind of eat it. But I think we should expect more. And I want to expect more from Ripley. And this comes to such a head in the final battle with the queen alien. You know what they say? Like there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Well, 
Queen Alien is just another woman. She's just trying to be a good mom. Like, lay off, Ripley. So let's talk about get away from her, you bitch. Get away from her, you bitch! The founders of Bitch Magazine wrote a really great piece on the word. Basically, if bitch is used culturally to describe any woman who is strong, angry, uncompromising, and uninterested in pleasing men, then it's not a bad word or it shouldn't be a bad word. And thus, it can and should be stripped of the negative connotation. It's a word that feminists can reclaim. The word slut, too. Like, it was deconstructed by feminists as if that's a woman who enjoys and seeks out sexual activity, then Again, this definition isn't inherently a bad thing until you realize the double standard as regards men. So with regard to Ripley calling Mother a bitch in the first movie, and then she does it again with the alien queen, she calls her a bitch in the second movie, it's interesting that it happens in both films, and I read them very differently. Women using the term between ourselves is fundamentally different than a man calling a woman that. And that's a result of a power imbalance. The literal meaning of the word is the same, but the context is so different. And these movies were made at a time where language was increasingly being politicized. And I like that within these two films, the journey for Ripley is she goes from a cat lady to a mom. And she is so fiercely protective of what she has. She is so fiercely protective of her norm that she doesn't want to see outside of it. And for as much as everyone else kind of rises to her level, she doesn't seem to rise above it herself. And, you know, it's a very headstrong thing to say, you know what, we'll get to outer space, nuke it from there. It's the only way to be sure. But it's just like, just get away from there. Again, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this is a species of crazy, acidic, blood-having aliens. And, you know, who are we to say they don't or shouldn't exist? Well, that's right. And when it came to the first film, of course, you're annoyed when she goes back for the fucking cat. You're like, what are you doing? Don't do that. But increasingly, as I watched it, I was like, okay, you know, if you're going to be the only fucking survivor of this horrible ordeal, I will take anything with me. If there is a flea that survives this with me, then I will have saved another life and it won't have been in vain. And I don't think that's a woman thing. I don't think that's a mother thing. I think that's a, I did my fucking best and I tried to get everyone off here alive. Not just myself, but everyone. When it comes to Newt, I feel like it's very different. I feel like she's less rational when it comes to Newt because there's obviously other imperatives at work here, which again, I believe is her idea that she failed as a mother because she was fucking drifting in space while her daughter aged. But it bears mention that when Ripley is calling the queen alien a bitch, she's not using the word as a compliment. She's not saying, gee whiz, you are assertive and you are saying what you think. No, 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 no. Their showdown is essentially mother versus mother. They're both willing to die for their offspring. And in the scene that you brought up a little bit earlier, Alex, like Ripley makes a weird unspoken agreement with her when they're in the room with all the eggs. And Ripley's got her flamethrower and she's threatening to toast them when she's being circled by xenomorphs in the alien and Queen's like, "Uh uh-oh, call them off, protect the eggs at any cost. And then when Ripley gets to a position of safety, she reneges on that arrangement and nukes the eggs anyway. So who's the fucking bitch? And I think it becomes even more problematic when they get back onto the ship. Hicks has been injured, so he's out. He's in stasis. Bishop is helping getting Newt on board. And then the alien queen emerges like this 
terrifying insect thing. It's an incredible moment. And she reveals herself slicing Bishop in half, which is horrible because you like Bishop. Newt is freaking out. And Ripley goes into, again, full-on action mode, just like she did with the eggs. And what's interesting to me and what we've talked about in this episode is that the ultimate villain is a corporation. It is the patriarchal instinct that guides all of these characters. And what Ripley ultimately has to do to face the alien queen is don the workloader, this corporate or military emblem, which has failed her at every stage. And that's what she needs to don to fight someone who is essentially her equal in the queen alien. That's right. I ultimately felt like the fact that she used the term bitch, like it's a gendered term, but it's also a very human term. And the fact that she used it against this queen also humanizes the queen, humanizes her motivations, makes them a bit more relatable. Like Ripley being a woman and calling her opponent out with a woman's slur really puts them on the same playing field, even though they're totally different species. And they let us know that the only reason these two women protecting their offspring, protecting their people are at odds is because of this corporation. So as we've wrapped up our discussion of Alien, and we've put a pin in a lot of things for ourselves, because I think for both Andrea and I, this series really begins and ends not only with the xenomorphs, but with Ripley. And those are the elements that I like to focus on. But in the interest of all our beloved listeners, I revisited a film that came out a few years ago, which was Ridley Scott's return to the Alien franchise and also a return for him to the science fiction genre after not only Alien, but also Blade Runner. And Prometheus, I'm... I'm not going to mince my words, guys. It's a hot mess. It's a really gross, stinky, hot mess. I know it has its fans, and it does attempt to be a prequel to Alien, and it attempts to explain some of the origins, but it attempts to do so in a way where it makes everything important. It attempts to explain the origins of a corporation and how it creates an android, but the android is also Guy Pierce's son, but it's also not really Charlie's Theron, but it might be Charlie's Theron. It's an interesting mess of a really big-budget film. And for me, Prometheus was really interesting because it amplifies what Alien and Aliens do so well. And that is the simple shorthand with which they do everything. It's like, oh, Ash is a fucking android. Okay, we know about androids, that's a thing. Whereas in Prometheus, they have to monologue about the importance of things. There is none of the mundaneness which makes these characters and these situations so palatable and so human to us. It equates everything to this godlike stature, and it's so exhausting to watch, and it's so silly on so many levels. I just... I would feel remiss if we didn't mention it, but to be very honest, listeners, I'm more excited to revisit Alien vs. Predator, which I'm going to do, and hopefully we can kind of bring into the discussion for next episode. I have to agree with Alex on this one, guys. I think Prometheus was singularly the worst time I've ever had in a cinema. And that's partly because of the build-up to it. I was so excited for it because, holy shit, it's a new Aliens prequel. It's going to explain everything. This is going to be fucking amazing. There was a great marketing campaign that went along with it. There was, like, these fake websites and these fake TED Talks and, like, Cloverfield-esque viral marketing that I thought was so interesting and so compelling. But I feel like these filmmakers who touched on genius as the result of 
of a perfect storm. Like we said in the beginning of this episode, everything coalesced nicely to perform genius. I don't know if it went to their heads or what, but I feel like Prometheus just really bit off way more than it could chew. It took these philosophical elements that were touched on in these films a little bit and just expanded them to be like, really, we're going to explore the meaning of human life now? We're going to find humanity's creator and get some really hard truths and like, then why, daddy, why? That was all I got from this film. And from what I understand, the audience response has been really, really divided. We're not the only ones on this. Whether it's been unfairly maligned or erroneously praised, I was watching a couple of YouTube videos earlier today about, well, let me explain Prometheus for you, honey. Let me tell you that plot holes are not plot holes because they don't explain everything. Plot holes are contradictory. And just because they didn't explain, that's just building up to the next movie. Mm -mm, I am not buying it. Well, luckily for us, Andrea, they are in production on Prometheus 2, colon something something. They're going to explore more of it. All I know is that Numi Rapace, who played Elizabeth Shaw in Prometheus, she's not back, but Michael Fassbender is. They're just kind of milking this, and I think this is also the appropriate time to talk about the Neil Blomkamp potential sequels that may be happening. Now, Neil Blomkamp is the director of District 9. He's, I believe, a South African director. He's done a couple other science fiction films, and he basically came out with these sketches, I guess about a year or so ago, of what would happen if Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection never happened? And what if Hicks and Newt were still alive? And what if, what if, what if? Now Fox seems to be stop-starting on getting into production on those. So it's another layer of weird alien mystique, which I don't know if we need. Now, getting into the next episode, these are two very flawed films. Very flawed, but I can't dismiss them. I don't want to dismiss them. I think they took more risks in doing what they did, and I'm excited to revisit them, and I'm excited to talk about them, rather than see a weird kind of fanboy rehash of what if Hicks, Newt, and Ripley were all a big happy family, and what if Uncle Bishop stopped by every Sunday? It's a little too Force Awakens for me. It's like, I don't need to see that. I would rather see a pure, imperfect vision of something new than a rehash of something I've seen done well enough. And that is what we're going to be looking at. And when we're looking at these first two films, we're talking huge auteurs. We're talking huge, huge budgets. The next couple of films, these filmmakers had a bit less to work with. They had to use their imagination. There's no one-upping aliens. Like, let's call it as it is. So that's about as much as I want to say about Prometheus for now. If you're listening to this episode and it's before the next episode and you think we're really doing it injustice and there's something you really want us to touch on, if there's something that you feel felt that we really missed, that Prometheus contributed to the mythology that would tie up the series. Man, we're all ears. I'm not promising anything, but uh, basically I just really don't want to fucking watch it again. We promise to consider whatever you say. So, your homework for next time. Watch Alien 3. Watch Alien Resurrection. Have fun with it. Let's see what happens. I'm excited, and I'm also going to be doing my extra credit, and I'm going to check out the Alien vs. Predator films, because why not? I haven't seen those in a while. Is it cultural appropriation for an alien to adopt Predator dreads? We're going to talk about it, so stay tuned for our next episode coming up next month. But for now... Office hours are closed. <laughs>